traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B38, The Last Severin Watching Alexander and Elagabalus head off to the Praetorian camp, Julia Mamaya would have been justified fearing the worst. After all, her nephew just stripped her son of his titles and tried to flush out his supporters, with an eye toward their arrest and execution. And now that he'd fully recognized his cousin's threat, well, Elagabalus might be pondering how Caracalla dealt with Geta. Mamaya's hopes for Alexander's safety rested on two critical factors. The first was Severin Gold, paid to the Praetorians by Mamaya's mother, Julia Mesa. The second was her son's good character, which had supposedly endeared him to the soldiers. Both factors had led to the Praetorians' demand that Elagabalus bring the boy, safe and sound, to their camp. But Elagabalus was still emperor, and the Praetorians were notoriously fickle. By sunrise, Mamaya knew her son might be exiled, imprisoned, or even killed. In her hour of need, she likely sought out Julia Mesa, the epitome of Emocene Steel. And together, mother and daughter waited until word finally arrived. Elagabalus was dead. Mamaya's sister, Julia Soemius Bassiana, was dead. And her 13-year-old son, Marcus Julius Gessius Bassianus Alexianus, was now the Emperor Severus Alexander, the youngest sole ruling emperor in Roman history. Mamaya was obviously grateful that her son was still alive and had been given imperial authority, but her feelings about the rest were likely more complicated. After all, Mamaya and Mesa hadn't moved against Elagabalus because he'd done them any harm, only because his erratic rule was eroding their family's power base. 
And the worst that could be said about Mamaya's sister, Bassiana, was that she was overly indulgent in dealing with a teenage son who'd been gifted with ultimate power. Though their relationship might have recently become strained, it's hard to picture Mamaya taking pleasure in her sister's death. So, Alexander was Augustus, Julia Mesa remained Augusta, and Julia Avita Mamaya was elevated to the same role. The Senate quickly invested Alexander with the full raft of imperial titles, mainly so the Praetorians didn't have time to change their minds. The Senate likely had some sense of Alexander's potential, and were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Julia Mesa may have even told a few key senators what might be expected from an Alexander regime. For a description of how things started off, I'll just quote Herodian directly. When Alexander received the empire, the appearance and the title of emperor were allowed him, but the management and control of imperial affairs were in the hands of his women and they undertook a more moderate and more equitable administration. First, they chose from the Senate to be the emperor's advisory council 16 men, who, because of their age, seemed most dignified and temperate in their conduct. Nothing was said or done unless these men had first considered the matter and given unanimous approval. The unqualified men whom Elagabalus had promoted to positions of trust or honor, or who were notorious for their crimes, were deprived of what they had received from the emperor, and were ordered to return to their former occupations. Under the new regime, the empire would be governed by experienced men of good character, and military matters were handled by those skilled in the arts of war. For her part, Mamaya kept the palace clear of any obvious bad influences and directed Alexander to spend most of his day at court. Her theory, according to Herodian, was that, occupied with important matters and the necessary business of the empire, he would have no opportunity to indulge in scandalous practices. Foremost among the wise men Mamaya chose to advise her son was the esteemed Phoenician jurist Ulpian of Tyre. As mentioned a few episodes back, Ulpian had labored alongside Mamaya's relative Papinianus of Emesa to distill an enormous body of Roman law into a more rational, streamlined system. And since Papinianus had been killed by Caracalla, Ulpian was now the greatest legal mind in the Roman world. Installed as Praetorian prefect, he was also Alexander's most trusted advisor during his first few months in power. As prefect, Ulpian's main priority was reining in the Praetorians. By this time, everyone was blindingly aware that the main threat to the empire was internal. And, after seeing his cousin cut down right in front of him, Alexander didn't need much convincing. Septimius Severus had recognized the threat, which is why he'd had the guard disbanded. But then, around a minute later, he'd had them reconstituted as an even larger Severan bodyguard. Since then, 
Under the loving care of Caracalla and Elagabalus, Severus's monster had only grown more powerful and more destructive. It was unclear what Ulpian could actually do, but at least he was supposed to give it a stab. Sometime in 222, a major riot broke out between the citizens of Rome and the Praetorians. According to Dio, the cause was trivial, but the ensuing chaos lasted three full days. After losing a number of street battles, the guardsmen resorted to an existential threat. If the people of Rome didn't stop their attacks, the Praetorians would burn down the capital. The threat worked, the citizens backed down, and Praetorian power was left intact. Ulpian's role in the affair is unknown, but it's safe to assume he'd oppose the guards' actions. Either way, in the wake of their victory, the Praetorians decided to eliminate their new prefect. When he learned he'd been targeted, Ulpian fled to the palace and took refuge with Alexander and Julia Mamaya, which only meant that mother and son were present to watch as the Praetorians cut him down. Not only did the Severans lose a key advisor, but they'd been shown the hard limits of their power. In 224, Alexander received alarming news from the east. A Persian tidal wave drowned the Parthian Empire, demolishing the status quo of nearly three centuries. The conflict took place far from the Roman frontier, and its impact, for the moment, remained a mystery. The change did provide one potential opportunity— if Rome had abandoned Mesopotamia out of fear of Artabanus, it could now begin reclaiming its former territories. Either way, within another five years, Rome's borders were still, or once again, at the Tigris. In 225, when Alexander was 16, Mamaya picked him a bride. Her mouthful of a name was Saea Herenia Salustia Barbia Orbiana. Not only was she the daughter of an esteemed senator, but as a bonus, she was also young and beautiful. Upon her marriage, Barbia Orbiana was elevated to the rank of Augusta. The next year, Mamaya's mother, the Empress Julia Mesa, passed away at the age of 61. In the end, it's hard to say which of the daughters of Julius Bassianus ended up the more powerful figure. Julia Domna had been wife of one emperor, mother of two others, and co-ruled the empire with her son Caracalla. Her sister Julia Mesa installed two grandsons on the throne and co-ruled the empire during both their reigns. Mesa's life, at least, seemed a bit less tragic, and she was lucky enough to die with her legacy still intact. With the loss of Julia Mesa, the formidable line of Emesene women was reduced to a single figure, the 46-year-old empress Julia Avita Mamaya. She embellished her role with hyperbolic titles, including Mother of the Camps, the Senate, and her native land, Mother of the Human Race, 
and my personal favorite, Mistress of the Inhabited World. While she'd given her son an exceptional upbringing and done a great deal to help the Empire recover from the dark days of Caracalla and Elagabalus, Mamaya wasn't entirely without her faults. In addition to a love of luxurious living, she was fiercely jealous of her son's devotion, and his happy marriage to Barbia Orbiana was a growing source of concern. According to Dio, Orbiana's main offense was claiming Alexander's affections. But Mamaya's jealousy was intense enough to make that a capital crime. First, Mamaya forbade Orbiana from using the title Augusta. Then she began treating her with cruelty and contempt. Fearing for her life, Orbiana fled to her father the powerful Roman senator, Saeus Salustius. And you have to feel for the guy. I mean, how do you protect your daughter from the most powerful woman in the world? In the end, he could only see one possible solution. As Herodian puts it, the girl's father could no longer endure Mamaya's insolence toward him and his daughter. Consequently, he took refuge in the Praetorian camp. Now, on the one hand, this made sense, since the Praetorians were pretty much untouchable. But winning over the guard meant outspending the Severans, and even Seleustius didn't have that kind of money. When she'd learned what he'd done, Julia Mamaya went ballistic. She accused Seleustius of conspiring with the army, and in August 227, had him arrested and executed. She then forced Alexander to divorce Orbiana, stripped her of her titles, and had her exiled to North Africa. During all of this, and despite his evident affection for her, Alexander never lifted a finger. Though Mamai had gotten her way in the imperial palace, the empire was far less obedient. Legionaries in numerous provinces were in a state of revolt, though it's hard to nail down the exact reason. It may have been similar to the early revolts against Elagabalus, that anyone with a bit of ambition and luck could see himself becoming emperor. Dio reports that the troops are so distinguished by wantonness and arrogance and freedom from reproof that those in Mesopotamia dared to kill their commander. He also notes that many uprisings were made by many persons, some of which caused serious alarm. Which sucks for the Empire, but is awesome for me because I get to talk about pirates. The last time I mentioned pirates was way back during Vespasian's Judean campaign. And with good reason, because really, ever since Pompey cleared the seas of pirates back in the early 1st century BC, they'd mostly remained cleared, until pretty much right now. At around this time, Alexander conferred a special command on a figure named Seleustius Victor to combat a rise in piracy affecting Mediterranean shipping. He even ordered the construction of special anti-pirate ships called Pristis, which were, ironically, based on an old Illyrian pirate ship design. 
pirate raids wouldn't really get bad for another few decades or so, when, according to historian H.A. Ormerod, large bands of marauders from the Black Sea were making their way into the Aegean, plundering on both shores, penetrating as far south as the coasts of Lycia and Pamphylia, and forcing their way inland as far as Cappadocia. Of course, by that time, it wouldn't be just piracy, but one vector of a massive Gothic invasion. But even at this early stage, it was a troubling sign of perceived or actual Roman weakness. 227 was also the year the Sassanids attacked Hatra and Armenia. Ardashir's campaign was largely a failure, and he'd never crossed the Tigris or directly threatened Rome. While some saw this as a hopeful sign, others suspected he'd only retired to prepare a larger campaign. Still, the Romans were used to dealing with the Parthians, making it tough to see Ardashir for the game-changer he was. For the moment, there seemed little to do but man the frontiers and stay vigilant. As mentioned last episode, one surprising outcome of Ardashir's attacks was an alliance between Hatra and Rome. And since Hatra had always been an implacable foe, it's unlikely Rome made first contact which means it was probably some official in Nisibis, Edessa, or Antioch who received the Atreides' first embassy. Their current king, Sanatruk II, had ruled since around 200, coming to power right after Severus's campaigns. His city was ringed by a mile of walls and under protection of the sun god Shamash. So if Ardashir compelled him to talk with the Romans, it was pretty serious business. The nature of the alliance can only be guessed at, but likely involved hosting a Roman garrison in exchange for special trade privileges. The agreement may have even been modeled on Rome's relationship with Palmyra. The next few years of Alexander's reign are pretty poorly documented. According to the Historia Augusta, he did what he could to restore military discipline, dismissing mutinous legions and punishing illegal acts. On the more accommodating side, he also ensured soldiers had basic equipment, adequate supplies, and pack animals to lighten their burdens. And, as long as we're quoting the Historia Augusta, it also gives us this. In the morning hours, Alexander would worship in the sanctuary of his lares, or guardian deities, in which he kept statues of the deified emperors, of whom, however, only the best had been selected, and also of certain holy souls, among them Apollonius of Tiana and according to a contemporary writer, Christ, Abraham, Orpheus, and others of this same character, and, besides, the portraits of his ancestors. Which, Blackstone aside, hints at the same syncretic approach favored by his cousin Elagabalus. The Historia Augusta paints Alexander as a paragon of wisdom and virtue, 
And, oddly enough, both Dio and Herodian seem to bear the verdict out. Herodian, in particular, states that Alexander was governed by a character naturally mild and civilized, and much inclined to benevolence. And he highlights that he entered the fourteenth year of his reign without bloodshed, and not readily did any emperor of our time, after the reign of Marcus Aurelius, act in this way, or display so much concern for a human life. To top it off, according to the Historia Augusta, Alexander's chief amusement consisted of having young dogs play with little pigs. And I don't even care if that's true, because that is the cutest thing I have ever heard. The main trait still open to debate was Alexander's strength, or more precisely, his virtus, or martial courage. It certainly didn't help that not only did Mamaya openly co-rule the empire, but he never challenged any of her decisions. Also not helping was the glaring fact that he had zero military experience. What he might have wished for was a brief campaign against some restless border tribe, show the eagle, win a victory, maybe even celebrate a triumph. But just his luck... Alexander's first threat was a full-scale Sassanid invasion. Now, we do get into a tricky thing about timing. If you're wondering why I'm leaning on the Historia Augusta, it's because Dio and Herodian only have a few pages each on Alexander's entire reign up through his conflict with Ardashir. And Herodian places that conflict in the 14th year of his reign. In other words, 236 AD. Which is fine, except, spoiler alert, Alexander dies in 235. So, as a best guess, sometime between 230 and 232 AD, the priest king Ardashir led Sassanid forces across the Tigris into Roman territory. According to Herodian, he overran and plundered Mesopotamia trampling it under the hoofs of his horses. He laid siege to the Roman garrison camps on the banks of the rivers, the camps that defended the empire. Rash by nature and elated by successes beyond his expectations, Ardashir was convinced that he could surmount every obstacle in his path. Artabanus's recent revenge campaign aside, it had been 70 years since an eastern army had invaded Roman territory. And the Sassanids were after much more than just revenge. According to Dio, Ardashir boasted that he would win back everything that the ancient Persians had once held, as far as the Grecian Sea. It was, he said, his rightful inheritance from his forefathers. According to Herodian, the entire continent opposite Europe, separated from it by the Aegean Sea and the Propontic Gulf, and the region called Asia, he wished to recover for the Persian Empire. Now, I've read everything I can dig up on the Sassanids, and modern interpretations really run the gamut. Everything from, yeah, that was totally their plan, to, no, that's just alarmism, and there's no proof the Sassanids planned to conquer the Roman East, 
to, okay, well, maybe they did, but the Parthians were the same way. But given Ardashir's background and the later words and actions of Sassanid kings, there doesn't seem much reason to doubt the primary sources. While the Parthians had seemed pretty content with the imperial status quo, Sassanid goals were clearly more ambitious. After consulting his advisors, and no doubt his mother, Alexander decided the best response was a strongly worded letter. According to Herodian, he told Ardashir that he must remain within his own borders and not initiate any action. Let him not, deluded by vain hopes, stir up a great war, but rather let each of them be content with what was already his. Alexander further reminded the Persian king of the victories won over them by Augustus, Trajan, Varus, and Severus. It's unconfirmed, but Alexander may have even used an exclamation point. Ardashir's reply, had he bothered to send one, might have mentioned the fact that, yeah, I just trounced the Parthians too. In fact, I killed the Parthian king who beat your emperor Macrinus. But really, that was neither here nor there. The Sassanids were not the Arsacids, and the Romans were not the Macedonians. But, at least for Ardashir, the Romans did provide a suitable target for payback. And, whether accident or destiny, it was all the more fitting that the current Roman emperor was named Alexander.